Well, we are in a series on the doctrine of union with Christ and how it answers the lies of identity as put forth by Henry Nouwen. And Nouwen's contribution, I think, has been to give a typology of the lies of identity that is a catalog of different types or different kinds of lies that, that help categorize or diagnose or think through where a person is building an identity apart from God. And as with all typologies, or at least most typologies, the various categories are, they're not hard and fast. They, they overlap, they inform each other, and they are not exhaustive. So no one has ever completely uh, one of these lies. You, you are never strictly speaking, I am what I own all the way down. And in truth, it is possible to be struggling with, with all of the lies in some measure all at once. So for example, with a lie, I am what I own, a young man may try to use a truck as a proxy for his, his masculinity. I am this truck and this truck is me, but that's hardly the only thing he will use for this, especially as most of his life, at least as a young man, is, is not spent driving, though he may find himself driving or standing next to his truck more often. He will probably also believe the lie, I am what I do, and may use, say, sports or hunting or some other activity in addition to his truck to continue to build his identity. And he may also believe, I am what people say about me, especially if his friends or his tribe signal to him. They, they'll never directly say this, but they'll, they'll, there's ways of letting him know uh, yes, we do think you measure up to what counts as a man as we see it. And so he will continue along the, the approval-seeking path in order to stay in their good graces. But their approval is tenuous. It's tenuous. Because at any moment, because of a, a mistake or a misstep or a sin against someone in the group, or maybe the opposite, because he was singled out or sinned against, this is the lie, I am my worst moment. His, his masculinity, his, his man card may be taken from him, and in turn, he is now defined by his shame and no longer has standing in the group. So what then is needed is proof, a triumph, an achievement, a trophy. I am my best moment that can't be taken from him, that he alone possesses, that he can always trot out and point to in order to prove that he has value and worth and is, no matter what, a man. And as you think through this, this not-so-fictional example, that trophy could again be his truck or his skill or a woman or the number of things uh, that he thinks he possesses in some way in order to validate him. And what makes Nowen's typology so compelling is that it brings to light something under the surface, something that we are hardly aware of, something that feels normal to us, that is, in reality, rebellion against God. So the young man isn't being self-reflective about any of this. He just knows he wants a truck and his current vehicle isn't doing it for him. And he believes once he obtains the vehicle, his status and his worth will change. Chances are good that as that young man becomes a middle-aged man, who in turn becomes an old man, even as his taste in vehicles 
will change, he will unknowingly assume this lie is how things really are. As we said last week, quoting Augustine, sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, self-dependent, and self-sustained. And what's so difficult to see is just how true that is and how deep sin really goes and how it affects every moment of our waking life. There is never a time in which you are not struggling against sin or the effects of sin in some way, which is just another way of saying there is no area of your life that does not involve spiritual warfare. And to think otherwise is to believe the lie that sin isn't that big of a deal. So today we're taking a side trip, really, an excursus in looking at the problems of idolatry and legalism, which are, in my view, intertwined and really undergird uh, these lies of identity that we've been looking at. In fact, I've spoken about idolatry and legalism multiple times throughout uh, this series. And then in turn, we want to look at how someone who has enjoyed union with Christ for a long time, what Paul calls a strong or a mature Christian, how that person responds to these things. Well, we're going to be all over the place uh, this morning, but Romans 15 verses 1 through 7 really is, is the vision I have. It's not the only place in the Bible, of course, but it's the vision where I think Paul and where Jesus wants us to be as mature Christians. So this is really our launching point and where we will come back to, or at least at the very least assume, as we go through this entire exercise. Romans 15, beginning with verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord in accordant with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how patient you are, how kind you are, how long-suffering you are with us. Lord, we can be hopelessly stupid at times, wayward, wandering away from you, chasing after such dumb things. And yet, Lord, you continue to come after us patiently, gently, pushing us back into your good graces, bringing us to where we need to be. Thank you for this. Thank you for this time together. May it be beneficial and good and glorify you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin by talking through the differences between idolatry and legalism. They are different, though I think, as I said earlier, they are intertwined, too. Well, idolatry in its simplest form is the attempt to use or control something in order to gratify the flesh, which in turn has the unintended consequences of enslaving us to that thing. 
So this was the promise, say, of worshiping Moloch or Ra or Asherah or Mars or Allah in the ancient world and really not so ancient world. So the idea is if I give this God what it claims to want, my worship or my tribute or my sacrifice, it will in turn give me control over some aspect of my life or the world around me, helping me to meet whatever need or desire I have. And of course, it, it never results in actual control. It always results in slavery. And it's telling that false gods always demand sacrifice and tribute first. They always demand it first before offering to give in to our sinful desires. False gods always promise life, whether it's an actual evil spiritual being like Moloch or the allure of illicit sex. False gods always promise life, meaning, happiness, fulfillment, and control, but instead take all of it away. So the modern equivalent of this is like the promise found in things like, say, cigarettes or painkillers or highly processed foods. There is real pleasure, real release from pain or anxiety, and they do in some measure give comfort. But the end result is not control over pain or discomfort, it's addiction and the destruction of your body and whatever control you gained was fleeting and illusory. But it feels like control. It feels like control. So when I was a smoker, I used cigarettes to get a grip on my emotions or stress or anxiety. It calmed me. It really calmed me. It gave me a sense of peace. It centered me and made me feel normal. And of course, it was pleasurable. Nobody smokes because it's not pleasurable. The reality was that it made me more anxious and increased my stress because I was unable to deal with discomfort of any kind without smoking. Never you mind the devastating toll, the so-called peace and comfort exacted on my body. The same thing is easily seen with the so-called comfort foods or alcohol. According to a recent story in Time magazine, deaths caused by alcohol spiked by 26% during the pandemic. So clearly, in a time of uncertainty, people turn to alcohol in order to cope. And the issue, the issue isn't so much alcohol in itself, but what people think it will do for them. So if you need to drink, a drink to unwind, if you need a drink to enjoy other people, or to help you go to bed, or to deal with the stress of your family, the holidays are coming. Well, chances are good that the alcohol isn't helping you control the situation like you think it is. Just the opposite. But if you don't believe me, just try doing all the things I mentioned without it. Try for a month and see what happens. If life feels way more stressful without it, it's arguably not life that's doing it to you. This is what all the lies of identity do as well. They all say, I will complete you or define you, or give you meaning and worth. Here's something you can control or use in order to feel loved or validated. It's why when you start to put in real variables in these lies, I am my Chevy Silverado. I am my jump shot. 
I am my TikTok account. I am my homecoming picture from 1987. The shallowness of the lie becomes apparent. Legalism also comes from a similar place, from the desire to control, in particular in terms of our social status. It's like what McCaskill argues. He says, legalism is wrong thinking about the moral life that involves the wrong use of the law. It sees obedience to the law as something that is performed by me, with the moral accomplishment becoming my capital. The problem is not an assumption that perfect performance of the law is the key to being saved. Instead, it is an assumption that I am the competent agent of obedience whose status within God's community is materially linked to my performance. So if you didn't catch all that, in other words, legalism is not so much the belief that I can work my way to heaven or that if I keep the law perfectly, God is obligated to save me. That legalism, that kind of, it does exist. It's called Mormonism. That's Islam, right? That, so it does exist. But in other words, for, for Christians, legalism tends to be not so much the belief that I can work my way to heaven or that if I perfectly keep God's law, he's obligated to save, to, to save me. It's, it's different. It's all about social capital. So legalism grows out of two misunderstandings. The first is that we wrongly assume that we are independent, moral Agents, And even though we are in a relationship with God, we still see ourselves as separate from him. It's like the married couple that fails to recognize that they are literally, not figuratively, literally one flesh, no matter how they may feel about their marriage on a given day. So we may trust and believe that God has forgiven us and in turn given us his spirit. And what we think that means very much like Luke Skywalker and his use of the force, is that we can tap into God for help or strength. He's like a lifeline. But ultimately, our thoughts, our desires, our behaviors are all on us. So whereas God sees me as Rob in Christ, like this, I see me as Rob and Christ, like this. The second related thing is that while not saving us, we, we know better than that. Our good works then are like possessions that give us status within the kingdom of God. And we saw that last week with Paul in Philippians 3 and his list of religious accomplishments that he thought he possessed and that he thought gave him standing in the kingdom of God. And you can see that very issue in the book of Galatians with the issue of circumcision. So I don't think Paul believed things like being circumcised actually saved him. But before Christ, he did believe they gave him status and worth within the kingdom of God. And as we've said repeatedly, and this is true with the lies of identity themselves, the issue is never with how God sees us. Arguably, we're not concerned about that. No, like the Pharisee praying loudly in public, I'm so thankful, hear me out, I'm so thankful I'm not like that wicked tax collector. It's how other people see us that truly matters. Legalism then is not so much about taking seriously or over seriously, you know, pick particular Christian practices like prayer or worship or fellowship or personal piety or, and, and all that. 
It's not even about rigorously being faithful to a, a Christian tradition. No, legalism is caught up in acquiring social capital in order to be esteemed by other Christians, or in the case of places like where we live in Butler County, the community at large. And what can make this complicated or perhaps nefarious might be the better word, is that in our pursuit of idolatry, so think of I am what I own, that can in turn become a source for our legalism, for social capital within the church. So, so legalism might look like, it might look like the man who has been successful in his professional white-collar job and the assumption that such a man, because we value him because of his economic and professional success, surely will make a good Sunday school teacher or officer in the church, particularly if he knows the right behaviors or the right Christian-sounding thing. So the assumption is, this is what good Christian men look like. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, just go read Paul on the requirements for church leadership. He never mentions a man's resume or his accomplishments or his profession. No, he mentions character, which is the natural outworking of union with Christ. Now, a similar instance of this it happens in evangelical spaces. It's, it's to find s- someone famous, like a famous athlete or an actor who has come to Christ. Or at least they, they, they have the appearance of a kind of family values moralism. And in turn, to give them a microphone or a platform, assuming that what they have to say by virtue of being a former athlete or an actor gives them more credence and in truth, or in turn, excuse me, far more influence. Why? For the sake of Christ. Right? That is social capital. And they have it not because of character, but because they're famous. Legalism can look like insisting on a particular way of dress for church and then enforcing it. It can look like the assumption that good Christians hold to a particular political party, and if you don't, your faith is suspect. It's like the debate I've heard over public school versus private school versus Christian school versus homeschool. And we all know which one good Christians choose, right? Legalism might look like the person who loves theology, has read all of Spurgeon's sermons, devours everything on the Gospel Coalition website, and could tell you all about it. I cannot tell you how many times I've mistakenly assumed a man's love for theology must by consequence mean he's godly. So from the woman who is is quick to quote the catechism to you in church, but is even quicker with gossip and judgmentalism outside of church, to the, the way men instinctively know that what is joked about at the hunk camp can never be said at church, so it's better to use euphemisms and have kind of a wink wink at church. Legalism is not about earning favor with God. If it was, we'd probably have much more consistent lives because we'd care far more about what God thinks and he sees us all the time. No, it's about fitting in and earning social capital. So for example, the temptation I felt on our 200th anniversary from the very spot I'm preaching now was taking the Gettys and Ligon Duncan more seriously than I would any of you on any given Sunday, simply because they are well-known 
and highly talented, and I've known their names for a long time. I wanted to be accepted by them. I wanted to come across as articulate and authoritative and talented, and to what end? I could tell you, they didn't care. They did not care. They weren't thinking about any of that stuff. And why should they? It's a worship service, right? It was a celebration of God's faithfulness, not a test of my skills. You know, Christians don't become hypocrites by sinning or failing to hold to their highest beliefs and values. Our, our failure actually proves the truth of the gospel, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, Christians become hypocrites when they pursue social capital in the church, and it can happen in the pulpit. So there's how you are on Sunday mornings or church events, because we want to be in good standing or seen as godly. It's why people sometimes feel the need to apologize to me for missing church as if they let me down. It's not my church. But then there's how you are everywhere else. And what makes you a hypocrite is that the real you is not found in church. What we see at church is no better than the Pharisee praying loudly on the street corner. So you know how to pray the Lord's Prayer. You, you, you know, and you insist upon taking your hat off you know, at, at the prayer and, and bow your head for the invocation at the football game. But the real you shows up once that prayer is over and the game has started. Now, the typical response to this, and, and no, nobody, right, nobody likes a hypocrite any more than they like a legalist. The typical response tends to be one of two things. First, it's to double down on being an autonomous moral agent and think, I'm going to work even harder at not being a legalist. And as an ironic consequence, they become a legalist about their legalism. I've seen it happen. I've done it myself. Second, and this is far more common, it's to go to the opposite side of the legalism coin and insist on your freedom and in turn become licentious. That is, if legalism looks like prohibition, then you are going to look like inhibition. So if legalism looks like avoiding all the words mom say we can't say, I'm going to keep it real and I'm going to say whatever I think, no matter what. This is who I am. I'm not putting up any fronts. I'm just being real. I'm not a legalist. And what's interesting is Calvin pointed out in our session meeting as I was walking through this, it is very possible to become a legalist about your licentiousness. That's how deep the sin goes, that you are forceful and insistent upon your freedoms to sin. So how then as we think through this with, with legalists and liberties, how are they failing to understand this? And what I think they, they fail to understand is that in Christ, in Christ, the moral expectations, one, they're way higher. They're way higher. I mean, just go read the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough to avoid murder. You can't hate another person. It's not enough to avoid adultery. You can't lust after anyone ever. Or Paul, Christ didn't set you free to pursue your sinful desires. He freed you to become his possession. So how then does, does someone actually measure up then? How do we measure up in the church? What's the standard? Well, the short and long of it is Christ alone. He's it. 
So if we take the trajectory of the Old Testament seriously and what the New Covenant promised, if we take seriously what Jesus taught his disciples on his final night with them in the book of John, if we take seriously what Paul has to say about union with Christ as the goal of justification, then we do not have a righteousness all our own. And in turn, we don't have anything, including our very existence, all on our own. That means our standing in the kingdom of God is not based on what we own or what we do or where we come from or how well-educated you are or how famous you are or how popular you are in the community or whatever. No, we are not independent moral agents. And what good we do is a gift from the one who indwells us and is sanctifying us and bearing fruit in us through the Spirit. That's why we are one body united in Christ, each of us being sanctified and gifted by the same Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So there's nothing about our righteous behavior that we could ever claim is something we did apart from God. No, our identity, our very being is in Christ, and there is no such thing as Paul. There is only Paul in Christ. We do not possess ourselves. We are possessed by another. It's why it is never the fruit of my personal growth in Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's also why we can say straight-faced that everyone here, everyone here is an equal Regardless of how the world defines us, and it's not based on race or gender or wealth or social class or anything other than Christ. Even so, because sin is more pernicious, it's more insidious and subtle than we think it is, idolatry and legalism are twin problems that we face nonstop. Nonstop. So the cure to legalism is is not to double down on my moral efforts, and it's certainly not licentiousness as if Christ has freed me to live however I want. No, the cure to idolatry and legalism is, again, you probably guessed it, found in Christ. So to be in Christ is to be free from the power of sin, which in turn means we are called to struggle against sin in Christ. That doesn't mean that you will not have sin in your life. That's a mistake. You will. But the power of slavery to sin is no longer over you. And that's Paul's point at the end of Romans 7. We do not conquer sin. He does. It's why in Philippians he tells us not to boast in ourselves. That's what the world does. No, boast in everything. Rejoice in everything in the Lord. That's why what the Bible always lands on is not legalism. That's Islam. You know, be better. That's Islam. No, it lands on wisdom. That is, taking every thought captive in light of God and union with him and reading the world by him and through him. It's like what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 6.12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So, for example, it is wrong to put a blanket statement on alcohol, that it's evil and to be avoided at all costs. If that's true, then Jesus was guilty of sin, and badly so. Nor does it, is it right to give a pass on alcohol as if it is harmless. You know, alcohol, after all, is a toxin, and it should be handled carefully. Is it lawful to drink? Yes. 
in the new heavens and new earth, wine will be served. Is it helpful in this life? Maybe. Maybe not. Regardless, the Christian must not be dominated by it. So I have no problem saying both that alcohol in itself is not evil and can be very good, even as I have no problem saying it is probably the most abused toxin in Butler County and many Christians are dominated by it. In Romans 14, Paul gives the example of a man who is weak in his faith and struggles over eating meat that comes from a pagan sacrifice. This is exactly what leads into Romans 15, our passage. And what's at view here is not an issue of legalism, so much as it is an issue of a sensitive conscience, which is different. It's different. In Paul's day, one of the best sources of meat you could buy came from the daily sacrifices offered in pagan temples. And it's actually very much like what I saw in Madrid in the 1990s with bullfights, believe it or not. They didn't merely slaughter the animal in the ring. They butchered the animal afterwards and sold it at market. It was very expensive. So like with the bullfights, the pagan temples tended to have the very best animals. Now, for the mature in faith, there should be the recognition that an animal itself is not tainted by the paganism of the ritual and the meat. It's still, it's still beef. It's still good. But for those coming out of paganism, or maybe perhaps some Jewish Christians who, who have been kosher all their life and are struggling, Eating this meat might be a real issue of conscience, as in they might really believe that by eating this meat they are sinning against God. So this is an issue of purity, but not like how we tend to think of it. It's not that the meat was bad in itself or bad for you. That's how we tend to think through things. But rather that the Christian could not separate the paganism from the meat itself. And so to him, eating meat sacrificed to idols was a denial of the gospel in his life and personal practice. Now, for the mature Christian whose conscience is stronger, and this needs to be said, on this issue, who understands that God made the cow and has declared it clean, he can eat with a good conscience. So his, his calling then is not to belittle his fellow Christian for his conscience, but instead to love the man with a sensitive conscience by abstaining from eating meat for his sake while he's with him. The freedom we have in Christ is the freedom to give up our life or our rights or personal desires or preferences for the sake of another. And as Paul says in Romans 15, maturity is not evidenced by how well you can spout theology. It is evidenced by how well you can love the body of Christ. So there are some who are free to drink. There are others who must not. And the reasons for these things are matters of conscience, and they're complicated. They just are. So I can drink or not drink for the sake of my brother in Christ, and because we are aware of our culture and the rampant abuse of alcohol in it, this is what wisdom looks like here. How we deal with these issues of alcohol should not be flippant. They should not be legalistic. They should not be licentious or anything other than love expressing itself in humility and wisdom. And this is just one issue with something we put in our body. As Paul makes clear, our spiritual sacrifice, that's Romans 13, 1, is to live for Christ and pursue peace with our siblings in Christ. Again, Romans 15. 
So legalism and licentiousness are way easier. They are way easier to pursue because they are, at root, selfish. To be in Christ is to give in to the Spirit's work in us and in turn to pursue the good of our neighbor. And that work, that moral disposition, it usually looks like Christ, which means it usually looks like humility. So it's easy to recognize issues of legalism or licentiousness, and and we should, I think, absolutely push against them. Gently, but we should be able to, to say what a thing is. But what if the issue is more complicated than simple legalism or licentiousness and really does involve an issue of conscience that mature Christians are divided over? So I, I really can't bring out in the sermon just how complicated Romans 14 and eating meat to idols was and how that involved so many aspects in a person's life. It was a deep issue, very complicated. But think of it this way. Should you get the vaccine or not? Should you wear a mask or not? Should you send your kids to public or private or Christian or homeschool them? Is it okay to be a member of the country club? Can you be a good Christian and vote for Trump or vote for Biden? Now, to be sure, these issues can become legalist, legalistic really fast. If you use vaccines or masks, schooling, memberships in an organization or politics as the marker of whether a person is a Christian not or a good Christian or not, I hate to tell you this, you're no better than the book of Galatians. You might as well be insisting on circumcision too. Even so, hopefully you can feel the tension. These are real issues that good Christians are divided over and have good reasons for holding what they hold. And within within this church, no less, there is division over these things. And mature Christians are willing to discuss them and remain siblings in Christ, even when they may be deeply divided over them. So, for example, Reverend Nathan Skipper and I have a serious disagreement over baptism. I've told him to his face, I think he's wrong. And he's come right back and said, well, brother, I think you're wrong. He's a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian. And I think it is a mark of the Spirit's work within us, a testimony to the goodness, not of us, but of Christ Jesus, that not only are we friends, we are welcome in each other's pulpits, and rightly so. And we can have civil discussion even when we disagree. And the reason we can disagree and remain together is because we are in Christ. Christ is the difference. Apart from Christ, the church takes on tribalism and idolatry and legalism and looks very much like the world. So the question becomes then, who's the weaker brother? We all think we know and we always think it's the other guy. It's like what Charles Spurgeon once said, beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. And the reality is that we are all weak on something. We all have sensitivities about something. We all have blind spots. We could all be legalistic about one thing and libertines on another. And all of us are struggling with idolatry. 
The mature Christian, the strong as Paul puts it in Romans 15.1, is not someone who has such a grip on himself and has figured these things out. It doesn't work like that. No, it's someone who has been gripped by Christ and is growing in humility. The mature in Christ has the obligation to bear, as Paul puts it, with the failings of the weak and not to please himself. It's like what Paul writes in Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, that is, you know, someone who is now possessed by Jesus and is in him, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Christ, you do not have to measure up. You don't. Because you're already measured by Christ, and he claims you for himself. He has freed you. This has been the whole point of this sermon series. He has freed you from the tyranny of the self, you know, both from the burden of legalism and the burden of licentiousness, because they are burdens. And he has completed you in him. You are in Christ. He is in you. That is who we are. And the Lord's Supper speaks to that. So let me pray for us, and we will go on to that beautiful, beautiful ritual, that sacrament. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you're so good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you for abiding with us. Thank you for taking the long view with us. Thank you for bearing with us in our weakness and in our sin, for patiently being the best teacher there is, for moving us and sanctification because you are good and you would have us be restored to what you would have us to be. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.